Well, good morning, everybody. Add my welcome. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, that bumper video was uh, prepared for the first half of our study of Nehemiah, so it ends with rebuild. That was the theme of chapters 1 through 6 of Nehemiah. We left off there about two months ago, shortly before Easter, and today we're picking it up at chapter 7, and oh, today in the next five weeks we're going to finish up the book of Nehemiah. And the theme now is no longer rebuilding the wall, but it's re rebuilding the people or renewing the people. So we're calling our study of the second half of Nehemiah, Renew Life Lessons from Nehemiah. It's about spiritual renewal. It's about rebuilding God's people spiritually and how God led that to come about. So chapter 7, in a sense, is a pivotal chapter in this book. The first six chapters are about the restoration of the wall of Jerusalem. The last seven chapters about the restoration of the people. So chapter 7 is a dividing line of sorts, and it reminds us that there were really a couple of different phases in Nehemiah's life and his ministry in Judah. The first phase was the rebuilding the wall phase for him. The second phase, the rebuilding the people phase for Nehemiah. Two distinct phases, parts of his ministry, so he had to shift hats at this point, change his role, change his focus somewhat, and use a different set of leadership skills. So... What we're going to look at today is one of the main reasons why sometimes businesses go bankrupt and why sometimes churches stagnate and why even families and organizations have problems. It's what people call the transitional problem. The transitional problem. This is on your notes, so if you haven't opened up your uh, notes yet or grabbed those out of your bulletin, please find those at this time and pull them out or open them up on your app. And also, it would be a great time to grab your Bible and join me in Nehemiah 7. So, Nehemiah 7, if you're taking the, pew, or the chair Bible in front of you, it's page 402, 402. The transitional problem is failing to adapt to change. It's when leaders don't know how to grow with the organization if they don't have the skills to go to the next level, so to speak. And by the way, the transitional problem is an issue in families sometimes as well, because parents, as, as the family grow and as they get more kids, uh, things get more complex, uh, challenges, you know, compound. I'm looking right at Peter while I'm saying that. Yeah, you set yourself up for that, Peter. So uh, we have to learn new skills, don't we, as families grow. So we're talking about adapting to change today, whether it's family change, organizational change, church change military units, businesses, whatever it is, we go through change. Nehemiah understood this. Nehemiah knew how to change when that became necessary, and he knew how to switch hats. And we're going to see three skills that Nehemiah employed in his work in Jerusalem and in Judah. All right? First, appointing key leaders. Secondly, keeping good records. And third, raising financial support. That's where we're going. So let's begin by watching Nehemiah as he goes about appointing key leaders. That's verses 1 through 4. And the first thing that we notice in chapter 7 is the new leadership that Nehemiah appoints. He provides this leadership for the city. Even though the walls had been restored, Nehemiah realized his work was not done. The times were still dangerous. There were dangers from possible attack from the outside, and there was also the potential problem of traitors rising up on the inside. And so Nehemiah appointed leaders for the security of the city. 
verse 1 begins like this. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Two co-leaders, it looks like to me, that Nehemiah appointed over Jerusalem. He put Hanani, his brother, in, uh, as the civil leader of Jerusalem. Today we might call him the mayor. Uh, then he chose Han Hananiah, the commander of the castle, to be the military or the police leader over the city of Jerusalem. And it's a reminder to us that everything rises or falls on leadership. And it's very important what kind of leaders we choose over us. What kind of leaders did Nehemiah look for? And what do we look for when we look to someone to lead us today? Two character qualities are highlighted in verse 2. First is faithfulness. He looked for faithfulness because leaders must have integrity. They need to be faithful. Leadership actually is built upon trust. So both of these guys, Hanani and Hananiah, had a track record. Nehemiah knew these men well. He knew their faithfulness. He knew they were trustworthy. So let's think about faithfulness for just a minute. In the New Testament, over in 1 Timothy 3.10, Paul gives the qualifications of deacons or spiritual leaders in the church. And one of the things he says there is they must first be tested for their faithfulness. In Matthew chapter 25, in the parable of the talents, when Jesus spoke that, he said that promotion in God's kingdom is based upon faithfulness. He says, if you're faithful in little things, I will give you more. This is how he put it. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the point is that when God chooses people that he can use, he chooses them on the basis of their faithfulness. That's the first character quality to look for. The second one is this. The second quality of a leader is God-fearing. So what does that mean? Well, Nehemiah looked for people who took their relationship with God very seriously. Verse 2 says, He was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. That means he has reverence for God. It means if God says it, I believe it, and that's what I'm going to try to do. Obedient to the word of God. Desiring to follow God with all my heart. God-fearing. And then in verse 3, after Nehemiah had appointed these leaders, next he gives them advice. That's verses 3 and 4. Here's what he says. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing... While they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So Nehemiah is giving these two and those that are under their charge some specific instructions. He's saying, watch out, guard the city. Be alert, be aware. So we've got the wall built, we've got the gates hung, but we still need to be careful and on guard. In that day especially, 
city walls and city gates were the key to its security. Can you imagine what a tragedy it would have been to have worked for those 52 days and finish rebuilding the, the city walls and hanging the gates and then forget to have somebody watch them and be careful and let the enemy slip in and take over? That would have been sad, wouldn't it? So the security of the city is what he's talking to them about. And that brings up another matter front and center, and that is Jerusalem is spacious, and at this point, not many people live there, not many houses had been rebuilt. So the city's safe to live in, again, and there were certain advantages of living in the capital rather than out in the villages scattered around Judah. And he, Nehemiah understood that a larger population would cause the city, their capital, to prosper and to be safe, much more defensible. And so Nehemiah is preparing to ask some of the people to move into their new capital, their rebuilt capital, to protect it. And by the way, we might ask the question, whose idea was it to, to take this census? Censuses aren't all, weren't always good. Whose idea was this? And we're going to see as we come to verse 5 that this was clearly God's idea. And of course, taking a census requires keeping good records. When we think about keeping records, we often think about financial accounting. But in this passage, Nehemiah is not talking primarily about finances. He's talking much more about people. People are far more important than money. We ought to keep as good of records as possible about both, but Nehemiah makes it clear that it's the people that he's really concerned about here the most. And a healthy organization does both. It keeps track of both. All right, so now a census in Jewish practices was according to the families and according to the tribes, the tribes of Israel. And in the course of the preparations Nehemiah made for this census, they discovered this list of families, this genealogy of those who had come back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And that's what verse 5 mentions, so let me read that for you now as we talk about the, the explanation of the records. Verse 5 says this, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, and then he's going to launch off into the genealogies. But what's he talking about who came up at the first? Well, Nehemiah discovered this registry of people, the names of all those who returned to Jerusalem from Persia 70 years earlier. All right? The same list with minor variations is also found back in Ezra chapter 2. Decades have gone by now, and the list is given here in Nehemiah once again. So why is this so important? You know, any time that something is repeated like this in the Bible, it means something. And I think that one thing it tells us is that God never forgets anyone who serves him or sacrifices for him. We'll come back to that idea. One more thought about genealogies. Genealogies tend to be a little boring for most Americans. But genealogy was crucial for these descendants of Abraham. God planted in Nehemiah's heart the task of tracing the promised seed and keeping the genealogies current and accurate. And this is a picture of the gospel, actually. This is a picture of Jesus in the book of Nehemiah. 
See, when God sent Jesus, he perfectly fulfilled everything that was written about him in terms of genealogy. In fact, it's one of the proofs that we have in Scripture that Jesus was indeed Messiah, and Nehemiah helps in keeping that genealogy. Well, next let's look at those actual records beginning in verse 6. And this is by far the largest part of the chapter in terms of length. It begins at verse 6. It goes all the way through verse 65. And as we look over this section, we're going to see nine specific groups of people that are listed. And I've included them on your sermon notes so you don't have to write them down or try to remember them. But I want you to see how they're organized and listed out here. And the first one that we read about is the original leaders of the people. And by the way, the people that are listed here that we're going to read about really are heroes. They're heroes of the faith. So let me read verses 6 and 7, and then I'll explain that a little. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his, own each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nehem, Bana. Now you know why we're not reading the whole chapter. <laughs> the number of the men of the people of Israel, and then it's getting ready to list those numbers, all right? So, these were the people who came up. And I heard somewhere that that it was something like only 3% of the Jews living in Persia were willing, those exiles were willing to go back to Judah to rebuild and to restore their nation. Why is that? Let me, another word of explanation. When, when the Israelites went into captivity, it was Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, his army that captured them and took them back to Babylon as captives in exile. And then Media Persia conquered Babylon, and so we talk about the exiles coming back from, not Babylon, but Persia, because of that. But why would only 3% choose to go back to the Promised Land? Well, the big reason, I think, is because they had put their roots down so deeply in Babylon and Persia. They connected there in marriage, they connected in friendship, they developed businesses, they had homes. And so when the chance came to go back to Judah, most of the Jews didn't even want to go. And one of the reasons I believe their names are given here is because God is saying, I'm not going to forget the kind of sacrifice you made for me. You gave up your homes, you gave up many relationships and prosperity, you left all of that behind in Persia. You gave up so much to return and rebuild Jerusalem for me. And I am not going to forget what you did. I have a great reward in mind for you, in other words. And the same, I believe, is still true. Consider Hebrews 6.10, for example. Hebrews 6.10 says, for, for God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. We have a heavenly Father who is just and loving, and he will never forget what you and I have done for him, beloved. He never forgets that. I see the sacrifices many of you make serving the Lord here at Lake City and in our community. But more importantly, he does. So just know this. He never forgets that. He will never forget. 
And someday when you stand before him, he is going to reward you for that. He is going to reward you for your sacrifice and for your hard work and for the way you served him and for your sacrificial giving for his kingdom. You can be assured of that. So the next group of people that we see here in the text is the people listed by their families and by the cities that they return to. That's verses 8 to 38. Then the third group of people is the priests listed out by their families. The fourth group is the Levites. The fifth group is the singers. The sixth group is the gatekeepers. It's interesting to me that even the gatekeepers, it appears to me, were Levites. Notice in verse 43 how he identifies these groups of people. In fact, I'm going to read verses 43 to 45. It says, The Levites, the sons of Yeshua, namely Cadmio, of the sons of Hodavah, 74 of them. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Adder, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. So let's pause there. It seems to me as we read Nehemiah 7 that there's two distinct groups of gatekeepers that are mentioned, or at least they have two distinct roles. All right, in verse 1, they seem to be guards of the city gates. Here in verse 45, they seem to be those who serve and guard at the temple doors and the temple gates. And it appears to me that they had both roles. Thinking about our own church, our own family here at Lake City, and I think that we have gatekeepers as well. And these gatekeepers have two main roles here at Lake City. They serve in the parking lot and out, out in our campus as security team, and they serve inside our building as ushers. And uh, they keep us safe, and they facilitate our ministry in so many ways. And we thank you, security team and ushers, for all you do for us. Bless you. The seventh group of people mentioned by name are the temple servants. The eighth group, the sons of Solomon's servants. And ninth, those with questionable ancestry. That's an interesting one, beginning in verse 61. That group is mentioned. So while, while taking the census, Nehemiah found this group of people who couldn't prove their family genealogy. So let me read that for you, beginning at verse 61. The following were those who came up from Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. They were the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. A couple things you need to recognize here is, remember that the priests and their families could eat a portion of the sacrifices the people brought to the temple, the part that wasn't burned on the altar, the priests got to enjoy. That's the holy food he's talking about here. And uh, there was this group of people, though, that couldn't prove their genealogies that they were truly priestly families, so he said, you can't, you can't share in that. All right, so... And they also, they could no longer serve as priests at the temple. They had to go find other work 
until a priest was available with the Urim and the Thummim. That was a tools or instruments that the priests used to determine God's will. So I said, you're going to have to wait till later when we have a priest who can determine whether you are priestly family or not. Now, it might sound a little harsh to us today, but a pure priesthood was essential. It was not only part of the Old Testament law and commandments. It was essential to maintaining purity in their relationship with God. Now, if you're a bottom line kind of person, you'll want to look down to verse 66, because that's where Nehemiah gives the totals of all the people and the animals that he's counted in the census. In fact, I'd like to read verse 66 to 69 for you. It says, The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female, Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Isn't that great? So the total of the people was 42,360 plus their servants for a grand total of 49,942. In other words, Nehemiah was responsible for roughly 50,000 people who had returned to reestablish the nation of Judah. Quite a few people, almost the size of Lakewood, for example. And then Nehemiah even gives the totals of all the livestock. We might think that's a little strange, but remember in that culture, they were absolutely dependent on livestock. So that was absolutely important as well. And by the way, Nehemiah includes here the fact that there were 245 singers, both male and female. What's that about? Well, obviously, worship was super important to the people of Israel, just as it is to us today. And whether these 245 sang all together, or whether they were one big choir, or they were different uh, worship teams that served at different times, we're not sure. That's not defined for us here. Um, But throughout the history of God's people, worship has always been elevated in importance. And I think this is a good chance to uh, give a shout out to our choir and our worship teams that did such a great job leading us today and uh, every week. I want to thank thank you guys and uh, just uh, we're going to miss you for the summer choir and we look forward to uh, you coming back in the fall. We almost have 245, but uh, uh, we have a fantastic team that leads us every week. Again, most scholars believe that Nehemiah took this census at God's direction to prepare to bring some people to populate the city of Jerusalem, to draft them, so to speak. And good records would make sure that the sacrifice of leaving their hometowns and moving to the capital was done, was shared in a fair way among the, among the tribes and among the families, and that it was very equitable. So far, we've seen Nehemiah's wisdom to appoint key leaders. We've seen his care in numbering the people. Third, the final decision was finding a way to raise financial support. Raising financial support is the third thing. Somebody had to raise the money to keep God's work going and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so the next thing Nehemiah did was to raise the funds for the temple. In other words, he set up a stewardship initiative of sorts. And we called ours here at Lake City, we called ours Transform. We aren't told what they called theirs or if they even had a name. But I want you to read about it with me starting at verse 70. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work, 
The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 50 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest's garments. And then a little addendum, a little footnote or post postlude to the chapter. It says, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So it's difficult to exact what the exact monetary uh, value uh, of what they gave was and what the value of these ancient monies was. But if the estimates of the best scholars are accurate, the families of Israel gave gold and silver worth more than $5 million in today's equivalency. $5 million is a lot of money, a considerable endowment for rebuilding the temple. You say, well, what's the point of recording all of that? Nehemiah established the principle of giving generously to God's work here. And he started with the leadership of the community, and he had them lead by example. He lists their gifts first. And by the way, this is one of several examples in God's Word where there was a building project that God led His people to and the leaders of the community are called upon to set the example and to be the first to give. So notice the order of the giving that he mentions here. First, the leaders set the example. Secondly, the heads of families give their gifts, their itemized. And third, everybody else gave their gifts. That's the pattern. I also want to confess to you at this point, so when I was a young pastor, this whole thing of raising financial support especially made me feel very uncomfortable. So I, I just did not enjoy talking about finances, letting people know we need money uh, for God's work. And it's through Nehemiah and other parts of Scripture that I have been encouraged to realize that that's just part of spiritual leadership in God's family. And I've sort of accepted the, the role, uh, my responsibility to embrace that more um, openly by God's, with God's help. But it was very hard at first. I also want to thank you as a church family because one of the blessings of serving here at Lake City is you have made that so much easier because you are such a generous church family. And because of the way you give and you uh, sacrifice for God's work here, it's just so much easier than I've experienced elsewhere. So God bless you for that. All right, let's finish it up by talking about some life lessons for today, some applications that we can make from this section, okay? We're talking again about carrying on God's work faithfully and what that means, principles that apply in the realms of adapting to change, whether it's change in our homes, change in our businesses and workplace, or our church, or the military, or whatever kind of organization you might be part of. I want to highlight four lessons for you right now. Number one is this, that God uses faithful people. God is looking for people who are faithful. Organizations rise or fall on the kind of people that lead them and serve them. And God uses faithful people. Those who have a healthy fear of Him and those who are faithful in their service to Him. It's not really so much about specific gifts that you have. It's much more about your faithfulness to God that matters. And anyone can do that. Anyone can be faithful. Develop a lifestyle 
of faithfulness is what I'm saying. Because God blesses faithfulness. Lesson number two, protecting God's work is important. Protecting God's work is important. The book of Nehemiah is largely about protecting God's people and protecting God's work. That's why Nehemiah went to Jerusalem in the first place. He went to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That was the purpose of going there. And the first thing that Nehemiah did after finishing the building project was to appoint people then to guard the city and to secure it. And it's a reminder to us that protecting God's work is imperative. By the way, the letters that we have in the Bible, especially in our New Testament, are largely devoted to the same purpose, to protect God's church from doctrinal error and from division and disunity and to teach us as God's people how to live for him faithfully and how to do his work here. But largely, it's about protecting God's work and God's people. Listen, we have an enemy who is determined to steal and kill and destroy. And it's our job to be on guard against that. Whether you're a leader of a family or a brigade or a small group or a work team or a ministry team or some other group of people, beloved, take your role of guarding them seriously. I just want to say I'm so thankful for the group of leadership team that we have here at Lake City and the ministry leaders here at Lake City who do that so well, who take that charge seriously to protect God's work. That's lesson number two. Lesson three is God keeps good records. God is a record-keeping God. I would even go so far as to say that God loves numbers. I think that's clear from this chapter. God considers... Numbers and record-keeping important. And Nehemiah, we see, had the responsibility for leading this group of about 50,000 people. The question is, why would he put all these names in the Bible? Especially when you consider the fact that Ezra listed them back in Ezra chapter 2. Ezra lists them, then Nehemiah lists the same group. Why, why would God list their names twice in the Bible? There's got to be a reason for that. And I think that he did that for a couple of reasons. The first reason that comes to my mind is this, that these are the people who had the faith to return from Persia and go back to the promised land in that first exile. In 586, under Zerubbabel, when the king of Persia opened up the door to go back, these were the ones that had the faith to say yes. They took a huge leap of faith, step of faith to do that. Because they were comfortable in Persia. They'd been there for 70 years. These people were born there. That's all they had ever known. And now they're allowed to go back or to go to a place they'd never been before. They just heard about it. And they, in a step of faith, chose to go. They're God's people. They wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to worship God back in their homeland. And that's the first reason, I think, that they're highlighted and mentioned by name. That was a significant step of faith. Secondly, reason two, these are the people who actually rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, and that was a big deal. Nehemiah wanted to document the people who helped accomplish that feat. And they're celebrating what God had allowed them to do, even though it was a big sacrifice. This was a miracle. They did it in 52 days. And I believe that the point is this that God remembers and recognizes every step of faith you and I take. 
God remembers and recognizes every step of faith we take. I think God wanted to have a little hall of fame here, and so he puts it here in Nehemiah 7. And thousands of years later, we know the names of the people who rebuilt the wall and had the faith to leave the comforts of Persia and go to Judah to rebuild the city and the temple. Listen, God remembers every step of faith you and I take. And God considered these people important enough to include their names in his holy scripture, his hall of fame, his honor roll, so to speak. Question, I wonder if your name and my name is going to be listed in God's honor roll. You know, if God made a list of people who are doing his will today, would our names be on that list? It's a question worth asking, I believe. Would our names be on that list? Are you trying to live for the Lord and to do what he wants you to do? Are you living in faith? Are you making sacrifices for him? Because God keeps good records. We see that so clearly. He will never forget the things you do for him and the sacrifices you and I make for him. The Lord remembers and rewards those who serve him. Then also I want to encourage you to make sure that your own name is written down in God's book of life. Have you heard of God's book of life? The Bible tells us that God has a book with the names of all of those who have chosen to be saved written in it. It's called the Book of Life or the Lamb's Book of Life. It's mentioned specifically at least 10 times in Scripture. It's mentioned twice in Psalms, it's mentioned once in Philippians, and it's mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation. And I want to read just one of those verses for you and think about that for a minute. So Revelation 21 is a description of heaven. And here's what the Apostle John said about heaven. He says, Nothing evil will be allowed to enter nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that book of life is a listing of all who have trusted Christ as Savior and have eternal life. If you want to do a good study, we don't have time to develop this today, but study this book of life or the Lamb's book of life. You'll be blessed. We don't know all that we'd like to know about it, but I do know this. God keeps good records. We've seen that so clearly. God keeps good records, and he has my name written in his book. How about you? How about you, friend? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son? See, you can't get to heaven based upon doing good works or going to church or being baptized or trying to be a good person or a spiritual person. Those are works. Those are deeds. None of that gets anyone to heaven. But the Bible says it's only by faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for us that our sins can be forgiven and we can be saved. That's how we get to heaven. John 1.12 puts it like this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you've never taken that step of faith to ask Jesus to forgive you, I hope you will do that today. I'm going to give you a chance to do that in a few minutes as we close. But that's the second thing, or the... Third thing, God keeps good records. Lesson number four, don't miss out on being part of what God is doing. 
Don't miss out on what part of being part of what God's doing today, just as some missed out on being part of what God was doing in that day. Remember back in Nehemiah 3, we had this list of all the people, specifically by name, who repaired the wall, who did it in, in what area of the wall uh, they worked. And we saw that there was this group of people called the nobles of Tekoa. Remember them? They refused to help rebuilding the wall. We don't know why the nobles of Tekoa chose to sit out on the rebuilding project. We might make some guesses about it. That, that, that part doesn't really matter. What matters is that the wall was miraculously finished in just 52 days, even without them. It was just a bunch of ordinary people, priests and Levites and singers and goldsmiths and merchants, Nehemiah even, that rebuilt the wall. Nehemiah even records that one dad had his daughters out there rebuilding the wall. But there was this group of nobles who took themselves out of the game and they missed out on being part of God's miracle. They missed out on the blessing and the rewards of what God was doing there in Jerusalem. And what I want to say to you today is this, friend, don't miss out on the blessing and the rewards of what God has lined up for you. Be part of what God is doing here at Lake City Community Church and be part of what God is doing wherever he has you in the world today and around the world today. So we are just beginning our Transform Facility Expansion Project. It officially began, in a sense, yesterday because we had a group of volunteers yesterday that were here. They were tearing apart the classrooms in the lower education wing yesterday. And... Uh, We'll put some pictures of that up on the website soon, but uh, we're remodeling our children's classrooms, and there's gonna, over the next 13 months, we're going to be demolishing some old buildings and rebuilding some, uh, a new worship center and new children's classroom spaces. So for the next 13 months, our facilities are going to be expanded and remodeled so that we can better reach this community for the Lord and better make disciples for Him. And the question is, will you help us out? It's a big project, and we really do need everyone to uh, be involved, whether it's by praying or by giving or by serving or in some other way. What I want to encourage you is to be engaged. And hopefully you'll choose to be engaged in all of those ways. Please don't miss out on being part of what God is doing here at Lake City. All right, let's pray. Bow with me, please. Father, as we've studied this chapter in Nehemiah, and as we've thought about and seen the gospel uh, in this chapter and in the, in the genealogies that ultimately lead to you sending Jesus, I want to just pause and give this chance, this invitation for anyone here today to receive your forgiveness through faith in your son, Jesus. Friend, if that's you, just silently pray in your heart of hearts and, and say something like this to God. God, I... I need your forgiveness. I confess that I have sinned against you and I turn from my sin today. And I accept your forgiveness through faith in your son who died for me and who rose again. Thank you for that provision, that forgiveness you offer. I receive it today by faith. I understand I can't work for it or earn it or any of that, but I can receive it as a gift of faith today, and I do. And Father, we all thank you for that amazing gift of life and forgiveness. And we thank you, God, that you didn't just intend to save us so that we could go to heaven someday, but you have a job for us to do here. 
So, Father, we also would pray that you would help us to faithfully carry out your work here on earth. And Lord, as we begin this uh, Transform Expansion Project as a church family, I especially want to pray for us at, at Lake City Community Church. Help us to be flexible. Help us to be patient with the change and the, the turmoil. Pray a special blessing on the families that had to go to a different place today and find a different place to check kids in and all of us as we make adjustments and changes over the next months. God, I pray that as this ministry grows that you would raise up new and more godly leaders to, uh, to lead it and to shepherd it. I pray that you would provide the finances that are needed and that you would be, us, be with us in every way that we might make you known here and around the world. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.